Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Thanks, Kevin. I've got three Bibles here. I don't need that many. It's Advent, and we're looking forward to Jesus coming again. And when he does arrive, we want to be among the crowd of victorious people who join in his new life and future. Um, But there are countless dangers that would ruin our victory. Last Sunday, we met our first opponent, loveless orthodoxy. This morning, we kicked off against fear And uh, now we have the final match of the group stage to decide if we make it through to the knockout rounds. Um, The opposing team this evening is compromise. And compromise can be a good thing. If you're discussing with your spouse about how you decorate the house, then finding a middle ground is probably a good idea. Best not to split up over the cushion covers. But of course, compromise can be a bad thing too. Uh, But we'll get to that danger a little bit later because Jesus' first word to Pergamum is very positive. And as with all these letters, um, we are not Pergamum, but there are very important lessons for us to learn here. And I've got a summary sentence which is going to come up on the screen. And we'll look at the first bit, which is, Dear Church, you're holding on to me. Dear Church, you're holding on to me. Again, this letter starts with the angel bits that we don't understand, and if anybody in this series says they do understand, I don't believe them. Um, John has just had a vision of Jesus in chapter 1. I didn't read it last time, and I kind of regret that. So let me read Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, 
which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the seven lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash round his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Back to Pergamum, Jesus starts his letter to this church with these words. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Our Lord is highlighting the part of the vision that is most relevant to this particular church in their situation. Now, can you imagine seeing someone with a sharp sword coming out of their mouth? That is bizarre, isn't it? If you, if you try and picture it, it's actually quite terrifying. This isn't literally what our risen Lord Jesus looks like, but the same response of, of terror, of awe, of, uh, of fear is actually quite appropriate because this sword is a dramatic visual symbol of judgment. And it's coming out of Jesus' mouth because he's going to judge the world by his word. Why is this relevant for the church in Pergamum? Pergamum was the capital of the, Roman pro, uh, of, uh, the Roman province of Asia, and this meant it was the seat of government through which Rome could judge and rule over the whole wider area. And the problem here in Pergamum was that this God-given authority to judge and rule over the wider area was being misused for devilish purposes. Through this throne, a Christian called Antipas had been put to death. Through this seat of power, Satan was accomplishing his purposes. And that's why Jesus says, Pergamum's the place where Satan has his throne. That's why Jesus says in uh, verse 13, that's where Satan lives. Elsewhere in the Bible, we see that uh, human rulers and governments bear the sword as a symbol of uh, their God-given authority to rule and judge. But throughout Revelation, Satan uses that, uh, um, that authority to uh, accomplish his purposes. He uses people in government to persecute the church. And that sword, given by God, fell on Antipas. The church in Pergamon were constantly living with this sword of Rome, this sword of Satan dangling over them. But this vision of Jesus as the one who has the sharp double-edged sword was a reminder that actually it's Jesus who really is the one who's ruling and judging. Ultimately, he is the one in charge. He will right every single wrong, and the authorities that are working against these Christians in Pergamum uh, will face that judgment one day. So, Christians in Pergamum, don't fear those human authorities. Don't fear Satan. Revere 
Christ. But even though they lived in this place where Satan ruled and has his throne, Jesus has this to say of the church, these lovely words. I know where you live, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. They're words of well done. They're words of comfort, aren't they? Um, yet you remain true to my name is literally you are holding onto my name. You're holding onto my name. They're going through such a tough time, but they're still holding on to Jesus. Though they face the threat of the sword, the possibility of death, they're still holding on, staying true to Christ. And Jesus praises them for it. Think how encouraging it would be for those beaten down, poor, suffering believers to know that Jesus saw what they were going through and he was proud of them for holding on. Um, Notice as well how Jesus speaks of Antipas. He says, my faithful witness. Again, Jesus specifically takes time out just to speak well of one of his servants, just to speak well of someone who held on to the end. Now, um, let's acknowledge the blindingly obvious. We don't live with a sword hanging over us day by day. The main way that Satan is pressurizing us is not through the seat of British government. But he does have other ways in which he's working against us, even in Banstead. So just generally, I want to say, and I think it's legitimate to apply this, whatever evil days you are facing, if you are holding on to Jesus, then know this. He sees your faithful witness and he is so proud of you for holding on to him. He takes notice when his people are true to him. But around the world, of course, there are places um, like Pergamon back then where believers do live with the sword dangling over them every single day. Satan is using the government of various countries against them. So let's remember to pray for them. If you're a planner like me, then you might want to put um, a particular day in the week and devote your prayers that day to praying for Afghanistan or Somalia, uh, Christians in uh, that uh, Open Doors World Watch List uh, where the most persecuted nations are. Um, let's just pause for a moment, actually. I think like, rather than just telling you, pray, why don't we pray now for some of our family members who are facing that threat even today? Father God, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and Somalia tonight. Lord, we pray that they would know that their saviour notices their suffering and their faithfulness in that suffering. Lord, we pray that they would know just how proud Jesus is of them, and we pray that you would uh, sustain them in their suffering, that they would keep holding on to their Saviour. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's highlight the next part of the sentence. Dear church, you're holding on to me, but you're holding on to the world too. Under pressure, some wouldn't let go of Jesus, but they wouldn't let go of the world either. 
Um, are you ready for quite a niche gymnastics uh, illustration? Imagine you are on a trapeze. I don't know the series of events, the events that led you to be on a trapeze, but there you are. And uh, you stand on a high platform, and in front of you is a bar attached to a wire which goes out in front of you to a point of pivot. And what you do is you leap forward, holding onto this bar, and you swing down and down and down and down, and then up, 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 up. And in front of you is a second bar and a second trapeze. And so what you do is you reach out with one hand, and you grab onto the second bar, and you're just about to move your other hand onto the bar, but then you you sort of change your mind. And what happens then is you're kind of caught in between. Um, This bar is trying to pull you back that way from where you came, but, but this bar is trying to pull you onwards. And so you're kind of stuck with a hold on the original bar and the new bar, and they're both stretching you out and your, your, your grip is loosening and you're just about holding onto your fingertips and you're soon destined for a fall because you're trying to hold on to both bars. That's the compromise that we need to be warned of and that Jesus warns Pergamum of here. In verse 14, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Jesus is taking us back to a time just before God's people entered the promised land. They were traveling past enemy territory when they ran into trouble with Balak, the king of Moab. And this king hired a prophet called Balaam to curse Israel, much to his frustration. All this prophet could do is bless them. However, Balak had another plan. While the Israelites were camped on the plains of Moab, Numbers chapter 25 says this, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate sacrificial meals and bowed down before these gods. Balak uh, couldn't get Balaam to curse Israel, but he went for a different tactic. He used cultural pressure to get God's people to compromise and become just like the world around them. Jesus is saying that not all, but some of the Christians in Pergamum were doing the same thing, holding on to the teaching of Jesus and holding on to the teaching of Balaam. As in all cities uh, in that area at the time, there were temples on every corner and gods for every area of life, gods for each trade or each guild. And some were compromising because of the cultural pressure to be like the world. Join in temple feasts and uh, join in the ceremonies because otherwise you'll be a complete outsider. So there was cultural pressure, but that wasn't the only factor in their compromise. Theological persuasion was another trap that some fell for. Verse 15, Jesus says, Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. These Nicolaitans were a sort of Christian sect that taught that compromise of this sort was okay. They came up with 
biblical logic that would justify participating in idol worship and sexual immorality. Obviously, this wasn't good logic, but it must have been persuasive to some. So, Pergamum Christians were trying to hold on to Jesus, and some of them were trying to hold on to the world at the same time. Some were caught by cultural pressure, others were caught by theological persuasion, and you and I need to be careful of both. I don't know where you might be tempted to compromise. I think it's too easy to focus on obvious worldliness creeping into other parts of the church. Um, If we only ever focus on things like sexual ethics, then we're going to miss bigger dangers on our doorstep. Are you trying to hold on to the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Wall Street at the same time? Are you trying to hold on to the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of uh, comfortable middle-class Britain at the same time? Are you trying to hold on to Jesus and popularity, Jesus and praise, uh, any other number of idols that we might be tempted to compromise with? We need to hold on to Jesus with both hands because he and the world are pulling in completely different, opposite directions. And if we're trying to hold on to both things eventually our grip is going to break and it will lead to a dramatic fall. So um, why not have a think about how you would answer these two questions? Here they are. If you want to make a note of them, uh, feel free. What is the biggest cultural pressure for you to compromise? What is the biggest cultural pressure for you to compromise? And second question In what ways might you be persuaded by other Christians to compromise? In what ways might you be persuaded by other Christians to compromise? Those would be um, good discussion points afterwards or during the week if you'd like to talk about that. Let's go on to our third and final part of the summary sentence. Dear church, you're holding on to me, but you're holding on to the world too, so repent and listen up. Pulled in opposite directions on this trapeze of compromise, Jesus shows us the way to be victorious when he returns. If we are to overcome in the end, then we need to be those who repent and listen to the Spirit. Repent and listen to the Spirit. In his wisdom, Jesus gives us both a negative and positive motivation for this, the carrot and the stick, And the stick comes first, or perhaps the sword. Verse 16. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That's interesting, actually, isn't it? Although only some have compromised, Jesus seems to believe that we are all responsible. We all need to repent. If one person is compromising, that is not just that person's failure. That's our failure. When surrounded by cultural pressure and theological persuasion, our church family should be on guard, encouraging and challenging one another so that we can all hold on to Jesus. And when that has not happened, we should all repent. Um, Otherwise, some among us here will fall away and face the sword 
of Christ's judgment. Repentance here means embracing the call to, hold, uh, to help one another hold on to Christ alone. Repentance here means asking ourselves the question that we might not ask ourselves too often. How can I help my brothers and sisters to avoid compromise? That's the stick, and here's the carrot. Verse 17. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. We might summarize this, um, what the Spirit says, uh, in these words. Whatever the world has to offer, Jesus offers more. Jesus always offers more. These verses talk about hidden manna and a white stone, both of which sound pretty confusing um, and not all that appealing initially. Um, Manna was the food that God gave his people to keep them going in the wilderness. And according to, not the Bible, but Hebrew tradition, there was a pot of manna preserved in the Ark of the Covenant. And when the temple was destroyed, um, either Jeremiah or an angel rescued that pot of manna and took it up to Mount Sinai and buried it there. And the kind of uh, Hebrew hope was that when the Messianic age came, that manna would be brought out and all God's people would feast. Jesus is promising here that if we are victorious, that is, if we repent of all compromise, he will give us food that lasts and keeps us going through all eternity. He will give us food that will sustain us into eternal life. And really, that is what we're going to be remembering in communion later. That food, that hidden manna, is his own body, which he gave for us on the cross. The food sacrificed to idols, yes, it was tempting. But it is nothing compared to the food that Jesus offers. Whatever worldly satisfaction you're chasing, Jesus offers more and better. And what's the white stone? Admittedly, there are loads of options here, but I'm just going to give you the one that I find most persuading. Um, There are some ancient records that at the end of a race, the winning athlete would be given a white stone, possibly with their name written on it. And that white stone was like a ticket that would get them into the winner's banquet. It was like a yeah, ticket to get into the feast. So again, relevant to Pergamon because the feasts of the world, they were so tempting and they really are today. But Jesus offers an entrance into an even better feast forever. His death on the cross has bought our tickets to heaven, a ticket that none of us could ever afford. And that is what that white stone is. So, Dear church, you're holding on to me, but you're holding on to the world too. So repent and listen up. Last week I said we're not Ephesus, and this week I'm saying we're not Pergamum. Most of us here aren't compromising. But I do wonder if the pressures of life are causing some of us to wonder whether what the world has to offer might be worth investigating. 
Maybe some of us feel like, oh, we might be missing out on something by following Jesus. I promise you from these words, from these uh, verses, you are not missing out on anything. What Jesus offers is far better, far more sustaining, far more satisfying, far more longer lasting. He offers more than you could ever imagine. And I'll finish with this. He has loved us with such an uncompromising love. He hasn't just loved you with half his heart. He has given his whole heart. He has given his whole self for you. He has given everything for us. So surely the only appropriate response is a correspondingly uncompromising love on our behalf in return. As the song goes, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for our Saviour's words here this evening. Lord, if there's anyone who is struggling in evil days but holding on to Jesus, I pray that they would hear that well done from their Saviour. Father, if any of us are looking over our shoulder, wondering if the world has more for us than what we currently have with Jesus, Lord, I pray that we would hear this warning from this letter. And Father, just pray that you would help all of us to press on towards the day when Jesus returns. May we all be among the victorious overcomers. May we look forward to the feast that surpasses all others and the food that sustains into eternal life. Help us to hold on to Jesus with both hands. In his name we pray. Amen.